Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Well, turn in your Bible, please, with me to the book of Exodus as we continue to think about the Ten Commandments and learn what they mean. Exodus chapter 20 is where we are today. And once more, I will read all ten of the Ten Commandments. It's on page 73 of the church Bible that you'll find underneath one of your chairs near, near where you're sitting. Page 73. Exodus chapter 20. I want to read for you verses 1 through 17. Hear God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that as we've heard your word, we pray now that your spirit will teach us what it means, will apply it to our hearts, and will direct our thoughts to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We pray that in his name. Amen. We're in a series now in which we're studying the Ten Commandments. We looked last week at the first commandment, which is in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And now today we're going to go to verses 4 through 6 and talk about the second commandment. Again, verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. I want to answer two questions this morning. First question is, what is God calling us to in this second commandment? And the second question is, why should we take it so seriously? Okay, so let's dive in. What is God calling us to in this second commandment that I just read? Because at first glance, the second commandment sounds a lot like the first commandment. I mean, is there anybody here besides me who sort of has always thought that the difference between one and two is very vague. Well, as I studied it, it became much more clear to me this week 
the differences between the first and the second commandment. Last week we talked about not worshiping idols. I said last Sunday that an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing for you. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. I talked about some of the more common idols that we tend to worship in our lives. It could be our children or our job or our intelligence or leisure time. I mentioned even social networking can become an idol. Politics can be an idol. All of these are good things. Hobbies are good things. Your job is a good thing. Your beauty, your intelligence, all of that is a good thing. But the problem is when you turn that good thing into a source of life for you, equal to God. In other words, when you look to that good thing to satisfy that deepest need in your life for significance and meaning and security, then you're treating it as an idol. It's a substitute God. Remember last time I talked about the fact that God won't have that. He will not be an and. In other words, you should not be able to say, I love God and money. Or I love God and my children equally. It's not that way. God won't have that. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first commandment. But now the second commandment seems to be very similar. It's about idolatry. We talked about idols already. Don't make an idol. So what's the difference between one and two? Here it is. The first commandment says, don't worship the wrong God. Money, intelligence, beauty, fame, popularity, job, etc. Don't worship the wrong God. The second commandment says, don't worship the right God in a wrong way. And I'll flesh that out more as we go through this. The first commandment forbids us to replace God with a false God. While the second commandment forbids us to reduce God to something less than God. Let me put it positively. God is calling us in this second commandment to love and worship and honor and follow and serve God as he really is. God as he really is. Think of it like this. Think of it like in a marriage, a human marriage. After all, our relationship with God is much like a marriage. There are two ways to corrupt a marriage, right? One way you could corrupt your marriage, God forbid, would be to cheat on your spouse. You replace your spouse with another man or another woman. That's the first commandment. Don't do that to God. Don't replace him for another God. But there's another way to corrupt a marriage. And that would be by simply refusing to accept your spouse as he or she truly is. Instead of, in other words, instead of finding out all there is to know about your spouse and delighting in it and loving it and honoring it and wanting to know more about it, instead of that, you try to conform that person into a mold of your own making and you insist that unless he or she serves you the way you want to be served, then you're going to withhold your love from that person. See, that would be a different way to corrupt your marriage. It would have the same effect. But it's not cheating on him, not going over here to another person. Instead, it's trying to create that, that person that you're married to into someone of your own making, your own image. And that's what we do to God sometimes. That's what we do when we break the second commandment. 
We may not run into the arms of some other lover. We just refuse to accept God as he truly is. We accept him on our terms rather than on his terms. We set the rules and we ask God to bless it. You ever do that? I do it a lot. Human beings have always had this allergic reaction to God as he truly is. Fallen men and fallen women don't like the true God. He's too holy for us. He sees right through us. He sees the truth about who we are better than we see it ourselves. He's not impressed by what he sees. And so what do we do to escape that knowledge of a God who knows us so intimately? We recreate him in our own image. We tone down some of his attributes. And I'm going to talk about that more later. We shave off some part of his character that we don't like. Because we want a God that we can see. A God whom we can manage. So we imagine him the way we want him to be. We want him to be less demanding. Less exacting. Less holy. Less mysterious. Less God. Some people do this with images, pictures, icons, literal physical idols, statues, and so on like that. You remember, that's what the Israelites did. It's what they were tempted to do throughout their history. It's what caused their decline and their fall. And one of the most famous stories about their idolatry is in Exodus 32, just a few chapters over from where we are here. Moses, you know, had been up on Mount Sinai for a long time. The people of Israel down on the plain were wondering what happened to this Moses. And so they called Aaron to them. And Aaron said, well, take off your gold earrings, take off all your gold jewelry. And he melted it down. And out of that gold, he made them a golden calf. And Aaron said to the Israelites, Here is your God, O Israel. Here's your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's interesting. If you read in Exodus 32, many translations say, here are your gods, plural. But actually in the Hebrew, it's the same. And I think he said, here is your God. The people weren't replacing God with an idol. That's not what the golden calf was all about. No, they they believed in God. But what they were doing is they were reducing God down to an image of an idol. It was a bull calf, a symbol of strength and fertility. They were trying to make the invisible God visible, the mysterious God manageable. And pretty soon, you know what they were doing? They were out dancing and partying and living, uh, sinning against God down in the plain so that when Moses came down from the mountain, he was utterly shocked to see the level to which they had stooped. They violated the second commandment. God threatened to blot them out of his book. But Moses interceded for the people and God had mercy on them. But that story illustrates what we are capable of doing. Though we say we believe in God, though we say we are following the one true God, we can reduce him to something less than God. We can relate to him on our terms and expect him to relate to us on ours. And that's a violation of the second commandment. So I say some people do that with physical images. I went to Odessa, Ukraine 15 years ago or so on a mission trip. And my group went inside a Ukrainian Greek Orthodox church. And I was stunned. 
I've never been in a church that has icons and images and pictures and statues and things like that. They were everywhere. I mean, on one level, it's beautiful art. And don't let anybody think that God forbids art. You remember my sermon a few weeks ago. God loves creativity. He loves artistry. That's not what this is about. But the people were bowing down before these icons. They were trying to fit God into these pictures and using them as objects of adoration. And that's what offended God. That's what, that's what offends God. I was over in Japan with some of you. Remember last November we went over there and helped uh, do some cleanup in Ishinomaki there where the tsunami had hit. And uh, Bethany Bergen and I went inside this house and we helped this guy, uh, helped him clean up his house. And he had a Shinto shrine inside his house, this little miniature temple kind of thing. I, I don't even know what it was, but it was the object of his worship. He wanted God in that wooden object. And that's what displeases God. When the God of heaven and earth can be or can be thought of as somebody fitting into something we've created that can't speak, that can't listen, that can't respond. That's what many people do. In fact, many religions around the world depend on these idols. These icons, these shrines, these statues. Why is that? It's because they're all man's efforts to bring God down to our level and worship a God of our own making. We have this intense desire to do that because we cannot relate to God on his terms. Lest it mean that we repent of sin and stand before him naked and entirely dependent upon his mercy. And that Many human beings will not do. Well, now you may be saying to yourself, well, I feel pretty good about this commandment. I think the other nine are the ones that are going to trouble me. But, I mean, I don't have icons in my house. I've never made a golden calf. I've never drawn a picture of God and bowed down before it. It's not my problem. Uh, Let's move on to the third commandment, maybe you're saying. No, you probably don't worship icons and idols, neither do I. But do we sometimes hide from the real God in our minds by thinking thoughts, by choosing to think about God in ways that make us comfortable, in ways that fit our paradigms, in ways that leave us without mystery, in ways that we can understand and deal with and manage a little more easily? I think we do. Let me mention, in fact, four ways that occurred to me this week. Ways that perhaps you, maybe one or more of them, you do yourself, perhaps without even knowing it. First way. One way we hide from our real God in our minds is by being selective in what we will and will not believe. That is, we go through the things that we hear about from the Bible, from Christian books, from Christian teachers, and we decide this I like and that I don't like. So we pick out the truths that sort of fit our style. Maybe these are teachings or themes in the Bible that you will not accept because it just doesn't fit your paradigm, your picture about about how things ought to be. Now look, I'm not saying that you will always understand Christian truth. There are many truths in the Bible that I'm still trying to figure out, that I'll ask God, Lord, help me out with this one. And I'm also not saying that it's wrong to ask questions of truth. We should be. 
We should be asking questions and digging in and asking intelligent questions about the Bible. But what I'm talking about is those times when you've been shown something in the Scriptures and you reject it simply because you don't like it. Some people do that with the doctrine of hell. I don't like this doctrine of hell. I'd rather believe that everybody goes to heaven somehow. Some people do that with the doctrine of original sin. I don't understand that. I don't like the fact that Adam's sin becomes my sin. I don't like that. I'm not going to believe that. Predestination is another one. We see God says we, he chooses people, but I'm not going to deal with that. I don't, I don't like that. I prefer that, that people choose God. And there are others. But virtually, if, virtually what it is, is it's a virtual shaking of the fist at God and saying, God, I see it's in the Bible. I know it's a teaching of the faith, but I don't care for it. I'm simply not going to believe it. That's following a God of your own making. Maybe there are books of the Bible, verses of the Bible that you avoid. You dismiss them because they're too difficult, too demanding. You know, um, Thomas Jefferson had a had a Bible. You know this? Thomas Jefferson took the Bible and took some scissors and cut out the things he didn't like. Evidences of supernatural, evidences of miracle, he cut those all out. He ended up with a Bible of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that was very small. Didn't have any reference to miracles or supernatural. And you know how it ended? It ended with Jesus in the tomb. Because he didn't like the resurrection. I read 2 Timothy 3.16 and it doesn't say some scriptures God breathed. Most scriptures God breathed. Scriptures I like are God-breathed. It says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Second way, second way we sometimes try to fashion God in our own image is by picking and choosing among his attributes. This is a little similar to the first one, but it's different because here some people say, my God is a God of love. Or some people even say, my God is a God of wrath. In other words, we all tend to sort of create a profile of the God that we feel most comfortable with. I've found that if people have an anger problem, they tend toward picturing God as a God of wrath and judgment. Whereas if people are extra, have a sensitive soul, they tend to believe that God is a God of love and grace. The truth is God is both. God is both. He is angry with the wicked every day, and yet the Bible says he's also slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And while it's natural for us to lean in one direction or another, perhaps because of the way we are raised, maybe because of our temperament, might even have something to do with our spiritual giftings, we have to be aware that we are prone to fall off the beam on one side or the other of these different truths. Here's the point, guys. God is who he is. God is who he is. He is a consuming fire. He's also a gentle, loving shepherd. Let's not pick and choose and and say, God, you can't be this way. You've got to be this way. That's a violation of the second commandment. A third way that we do it, a third way we break this commandment is by, and this is very common, I'm telling you, we do this all the time, and I think we need to take notice of it, is by attributing power and wisdom to things that don't exist. Have you ever said, Good luck to somebody. You're attributing power to something called luck that doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as luck. It's not a power. It's not a thing. 
Have you ever said, if I'm lucky, I'll get a good grade on this paper? Or if I'm lucky, uh, this is going to happen to me? Or have you ever said, I'm so fortunate to have a good family? You may think I'm picking at trivia here, but there's no such thing as luck or fortune or chance. They don't exist. Yet how often do we slap God in the face when we give credit to these non-entities, when it is really he that makes all things possible? Another thing we say is Mother Nature did this or that or the other. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. God created all things. We should give God praise when things happen. We should wish people good providence instead of good luck. Those are common ways that we reduce God in our own mind and in the minds of other people. We rob God of his power. We rob him of his praise when we fail to give him proper credit for the things that he does. And fourth and finally, a way that we break the second commandment is by neglecting or belittling or profaning the worship of the church. When we belittle it, neglect it. You know, the Bible is filled with stories about people who were careless about worship and suffered some consequences. You can read about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. These and many other stories are about people who underestimated the God with whom we deal in worship. You know, what we do in this room every week is an amazing privilege, people of God. There are so many Christians around the world who have no idea that it's possible to sit in an air-conditioned room in perfect freedom and worship God as we do week in and week out. We so easily, I so easily can take this for granted. What a gift it is. It's not some time that we come to this building to get our ears tickled. Coming to church is not something we do to check a box on our to-do list or get entertained. We do it to praise and worship and hear from the living God. My goodness. You know, we sing sometimes that wonderful song from Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Is that how you feel about worship? I'd rather be in this room with my brothers and sisters in Christ than almost anywhere because I get to worship and praise the one who loves me so very much. Or do you come here? Is it sort of something you can give or take? Is, do you come here with a grudging spirit? Do you come here with a critical spirit? Must, do you say something like, must I wake up early today and come to worship? Must I help out in the nursery? Must I stand up on my feet for such a long time and sing these songs? Those are some of the comments that we sometimes think in our minds. And it's a minimizing of the wonderful gift of worship that we've been given. The psalmist says, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Let's, let's feel that way. We're blessed to be in this house every week. Well, to sum up, how do we break the second commandment? Well, many ways. I've mentioned four. But in general, what we do is we, we try to put God on our terms. We want to meet God with our expectations instead of bowing before God as he really is. I've just finished reading the book of Job. The second commandment actually helped me understand the book of Job better. 
Because I think the book of Job is about the second commandment. See, Job loved God. He didn't replace God, capital G, with another God, little g, but he did want to reduce God to something less than God. He wanted a God he could understand. He wanted a God who behaved like we do, but Job was wrong. God's not like us. God's not predictable. He's mysterious. He's not manageable. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And at the end of the book of Job, Job came to see this. He said, Lord, I spoke of things too big for me, too great. I could not understand them. Things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, he's seen God as he really is. And therefore, he says, I despise myself in dust and ashes. You know, I don't, I don't know where you are this morning. A lot of people in this room, maybe you're in a very hard place. Some of you are. Maybe you're in a place like Job's place. God is calling you through the second commandment to do something very radical. To let God be God. Some of you are in a place you hate. You despise it. You're going through something you absolutely despise. Second commandment says, let God be God. Let him be wise. Let him be your shepherd. Let him know more than you know. Let him be able to figure it out. Just be in his presence day by day. Honor him as he is. Why take this so seriously? Why be about the business of the second commandment? Well, the answer is in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to just notice two things. Two things why it's so important to take second commandment seriously. First, Sin patterns, and by that I'm talking about when we dig in our heels and we say, no, God, I'm not going to bend. I don't want to give over this part of my life. I want to hold on to it. I'm going to live life my way. Sin patterns often get passed down and repeated by our children and our grandchildren. That's what verse 5 says. If sin is not checked In the father and the mother, don't be surprised when it shows up in their sons and daughters and in their sons and daughters. Because what? Kids learn from our example, right? It's a fact of life. If I disregard the law of God habitually, stubbornly, it's likely that my kids are going to disregard the law of God. If I could care less about worship, it's likely that my kids are growing up caring less about worship. That's why the Bible is so insistent that parents teach and model God's word in the home. It's our job, moms and dads. It's not going to happen by osmosis. But I do want to give you the good news of verse 6. If all you had, mom and dad, was verse 5, it would crush you. But you have verse 6. It says God shows love 
to a thousand generations, not just three or four, but to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Isn't God gracious? That's God's way of saying that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's God's way of saying that grace transcends wrath. So take heart, mom. Take heart, dad. You are going to fail. There's not a perfect mom or dad on this planet. There never will be. But if you'll do your best to know and love and serve and worship God and repent when you fail, you'll pass that legacy of godliness on to the next generation. And it will last forever. But the second thing I want you to notice, why I take this sin seriously of the second commandment is in verse 5. It's because God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Hmm. That may give you some pause. God's jealous? Isn't jealousy a sin? Well, most of the time in the Bible it is. It's like envy. But this is a little different. This is a different way jealousy is used. Because when you really love somebody with all of your being, you get jealous when they give their love to someone else. I had a love in high school. I'm glad it didn't last. I much prefer my wife, Susie. But I did have a love in high school. Her name was Susan. I get this thing about Susans, I guess. But I had a love in high school. I was really, really in love with her. And she dumped me my summer before the senior year for reasons I still don't understand. (laughs) And it just about killed me. She embraced another guy, a classmate of mine. And I was so jealous. I was so jealous for that guy's place and for her love. I thought we were best friends. I thought we were supposed to get married someday. We talked about that. But she was taken away from me and my heart was moved with a jealousy that longed for love again. It's the same way with God. God can't bear a rival, friends. When we break the second commandment, we've not just broken the second commandment, we've broken his heart. And he's jealous for our love. It's a godly jealousy. It's a jealousy motivated by love for our good and his glory, which is our highest good. You know what I wanted to do to that guy that stole my girl? I wanted to kill him. Well, not really. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I wanted to kill him. I wanted him out of the way. I wanted him to die. You know what God did to win us back? He died. He died. Jesus died on the cross to win us back, to woo us so that we would come back home. And this morning at the Lord's table, we have a perfect opportunity to draw near to the jealous God who loves us so that when we give our hearts away, he's moved with jealousy. But he died that we might come back home. Let's prepare for communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sought us when we were enemies. You wooed us when we had embraced other lovers. And even today when we break the second commandment and we try to fashion you 
into some picture that we that we like more, even when we try to reduce you to a, a God that's manageable, a tame God, a domesticated God, a God that that we like instead of a God that we love. Thank you that even then the blood of Jesus washes away sin. And so, Lord Jesus, you've once again shown us that we can't obey the law. We break it all the time because we have this this tendency. We're prone to wander, Lord. So, Father, thank you that you obeyed the law for us and you died the death that we deserve to die because of our law breaking and gave us the life that you died to, to give us. Lord, may we now draw near you in gratitude for this wonderful love and re-embrace you as you really are. Bless these elements of bread and wine and juice, Lord, we pray. Let these be means of grace that we will run back again and again to our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.